Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. This is the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host of this channel. Today, I have the pleasure to meet and talk to Dr. Vicki Howard, who, who is a visiting fellow in the History Department at the University of Essex in the UK. She co-edits the journal History of Retailing and Consumption, her uh, notable works include Brights Incorporated and From Main Street to Mall, The Rise and Fall of the American Department Store, a great book which received the Hagley Prize in Business History. She's also the secretary of the Business History Conference. And I'm also accompanied by um, today by Dr. Sarah Elvins, who is Professor of History at the University of Manitoba in Canada. Her research interests lie in the history of retailing, regional identity, and cross-border shopping. She is the author of Sales and Celebrations, Retailing and Regional Identity in Western New York State. 1920 to 1940. Hello, Vicky. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hello. Today we're talking about a great volume. The title is A Cultural History of Shopping in the Modern Age. Vicky Howard is the editor of the volume, which is one volume of a six books series uh, entitled A Cultural History of Shopping in Different Time Periods. This volume covers the 20th century very broadly, and there are eight contributors besides uh, Sarah and Vicky. They come uh, from various academic backgrounds and have expertise in fields uh, such as sociology, history, literature, and marketing. And I will have a list of their names on the in the blog um, in the interviews blog post. Their research. Uh, focuses on different aspects of shopping, like uh, this book covers and uh, includes 
including its historical development and economic sociology, consumer culture, and a lot more. Their contributors uh, also cover uh, very various topics like self-service uh, within retailing and, and shopping, market seduction. Um, they cover it in different uh regions as well. But uh, before we talk a bit more about the book, uh, we I want to um, talk about you, Sarah and Vicky. I said a few words before about your academic profile, but um, it's always great for the audience to hear it from you. Um, yes, well, thank you for uh, having us. And I'm very excited to be here with uh, Sarah Elvins, um, with whom I've uh, been collaborating and have known for over 25 years since we met at um, Hagley Museum and Library in the 1990s when we were uh, graduate students and uh, have been working on, you know, uh, parallel tracks with our research interests for a long time. So I'm very excited to have this conversation and uh, also, you know, work, I worked with her on this on our volume, um, Cultural History of Shopping in the Modern Age. Um so I um, am the uh, co-editor with John Stobart of the um, journal uh, History of Retailing and Consumption. And John Stobart is, is at Manchester Metropolitan in the UK, and he is the series editor of, of this cultural history of shopping, um, of which mine is the, the last volume, um, uh, chronologically speaking. And he, he does the 18th century and focuses on um, consumption mostly, as well as retailing. Uh, and he and I, in 2015, founded the journal um, History of Retailing and Consumption. And um, I think that is sort of the genesis of this volume in terms of uh, um, John Stobart taking the lead and, and, and making a, a place uh, in, the, in, in publishing for uh, more work um, on this subject. We have also worked together. We um, ed edited a journal, uh, I'm sorry, a volume called The Rutledge Companion to the History of Retailing, which came out in 2019. And um, that was more of an uh, international um, sort of endeavor where we had a very large uh, geographical coverage looking at retailing across the world. Um, and but but it wasn't focused on shopping. So I think that this new series that uh, he um, edits and that uh, my volume came out in is something that focuses more on the practice of shopping. Um, and so I'm very excited that uh, we get a chance to talk about that today. Wonderful. Sarah, can you tell us more about you? Sure. Um, I would say that I'm a cultural historian who accidentally became a business historian. So I always was interested in consumer uh, history and consumer culture. And my first book um, examined consumer identity in the local market. So I was looking at Rochester and Buffalo, New York, and thinking about what does it mean when you live in a smaller place and you're part of the mass market? How do you experience um, sort of these big changes in uh, consumption and retailing that were happening in the 1920s and 30s. And from my, there, my uh, interest in this tension between the local and the national led me to research and write a series of articles about alternative currency or scrip uh, during the Great Depression. So again, how do people think of themselves being part of a local economy, even though they are also uh, part of much larger networks of trade and uh, um, the economy? Um, and uh, more recently, I've been looking at the history 
of cross-border shopping um, between uh, Canada and the U.S. So looking at um, people smuggling items, not wanting to pay duty on items, um, having access to the American market on the part of Canadians who maybe can't get some of the consumer goods uh, in their own country, and so they'll travel to go and buy them across the border. Um, the other thing that I would say that brought me, you know, here today to this volume and to uh, to this podcast, which I'm really happy to be a part of, is uh, Vicki Howard, because I've always enjoyed working with her and her own work in retailing history has had a big impact um, on my, uh, you know, the way that I think about department stores and the way that I think about uh, about retail history. That's great. Thank you. Um <clears throat> We uh, will start talking about the book then, and um, perhaps we can start big. Um, you talked a little bit about your involvement in the journal, but how did this uh, series came about? What was it? You said it was the journal, but the authors at some point uh, met uh, at, a, at some conference or did the publisher ap approach you? How did it all happen and why? And who did you have in, in mind um, when working on this project? Well, I think that um, a lot of that story probably happened before I uh, joined the project with um, John Stobart working with, this pub with the publisher as the series editor. Uh, but I was invited to edit this um, this last volume. Um, but I did become aware um, at the time that there were so many people working on this field, uh, going back to antiquity. Um, the, the actual series starts with antiquity, uh, and that um, it, it's just amazing to think about the the, the length of hi the of history that the series covers uh, from antiquity to the present day, and really. Um, my volume is the only one that deals with the 20th century. So it's it's very heavy on the earlier period. And usually when we are talking about shopping in the popular media and, and um, you know, sort of or lay people's sort of general interest in it, it tends to be weighted more into the late 20th and the 21st century. And there's a lot of um, uh, popular discussion about the uh, retail apocalypse and you know the, the decline of, of um, downtowns, the decline of shopping malls, the rise of e-commerce, and that's all weighted in the the later 20th and early 21st century. Um, but I think the series, um, and this is reflection, I think of the fact that the series editor is um, an 18th century historian. That the, the series as a whole, uh, all all those earlier volumes reflect that that this is a subject that really is is timeless almost. It, it goes back to the beginning of civilization. <laughs> you know, it is um, something that can be traced, um, you know, through different kinds of documents, the earlier documents being, you know, archaeological uh, and material, but then all the way through to the present day. Um, and uh, that was just sort of awe-inspiring to think of the, the weight of history behind this subject and the fact that, that you know, um, it had not been treated in, in this way um, Focusing on shopping uh, over over such a great length of time and across geographical boundaries as well, because um, I, I'm based in the U.S. and John, uh, I was based in the U.S. and I'm an Americanist. I study American history, but my my research is on the American retail industry. Um, but my my uh, my um, the authors in my volume and then the other editors of this series uh, are all, are coming from all kinds of different subdisciplines of history, and um, 
uh, you know, so, uh, and, and the journal that I edit also uh, is very international in scope. So the subject is, has an incredible chronological reach and a geographical um, uh, reach as well. And the themes I think that um, are fo- focused on in the, in the, in my volume, and, and they're replicated in each volume. It's something that Bloomsbury um, wanted us to do, which was trace certain themes over time. Uh, that those themes, I think, are also very interdisciplinary in scope. That they allow uh, that there's a lot of coverage for, of um, culture, as well as economics, um, as well as material culture, social history, um, and um, it, it's a very rich sort of approach, I think, to trace thematically. Um, these themes over time in the way that we did. Great. To start discussing the content of the book, um, the volume is an introduction to the cultural history of shopping from 1920 to the present. And as you say, shopping is an important social and economic activity, and that has been interpreted and represented in various ways uh, culturally. And that is why um, this book is organized in sections dealing with identities, retail formats, spaces, luxury goods and everyday goods. Um, So luxury goods and everyday goods, purchasing options. um, It's really a lot what it covers. Uh, So it's really an introduction for anyone that wants to study this, uh, also this themes. You also argue, and this is for Vicky, that a key element in the analysis of shopping is gender, uh, because traditionally and historically shopping has been seen as a feminine activity, uh, with women viewed as the primary shoppers and consumers, uh, especially for households, and also spaces like the home and the family, which are also very gendered uh, in that trajectory. And so can you elaborate on this and why a cultural history of shopping is also inevitably a a gender history? Um, Sure, thank you. I I think the volume as a whole um, suggests that, uh, you know, shopping um, is something that um, has changed over time and that it's it's, it's geographically and um, temporarily sort of contingent upon all kinds of um, factors and that so that, you know, maybe today... uh, shopping is gendered female, but in the past, perhaps it wasn't. And the, the scholars that um, wrote the different chapters, you know, show in their particular theme how how shopping evolved over time. And um, from 1920 to the present, which is the focus of my volume, um, shopping was gendered female. But in earlier volumes, um, edited by other people, you know, they would have looked at time periods where, you know, the shopping would have been done uh, for the household by by men in some in some um, national contexts, uh, and maybe in the very uh, uh, beginning of my time period in rural contexts, you might have men still doing shopping in the country stores. But really, by by the nineteen twenties, when my p- volume begins, um, it, it's seen as a female activity. Uh, but that was not always the case. And there's some we reach back in time in some of the chapters to look at earlier periods when it was not gendered female. Um, so we've kind of arrived at that moment when it was when marketers were um, focusing on what they called Mrs. Consumer, um, and so she was the consumer was not only uh, female but she was uh, a married woman and she was constructed as white and middle class, and then increasingly by the 1950s as suburban um, uh, it, by by marketers. Uh, but then as you go through the through the 20th century towards the uh, the late 20th century, you find marketers. 
um, attending, uh, make, paying attention to uh, the uh, male consumers and trying to get that kind of uh, uh, market going as well. Um, and then if, if in the period that um, uh, my introduction at least sort of touches on the, um, the rise of the uh, e-commerce period, uh, in that period, you, you have a sort of a more of a gender neutral consumer that um, is evidenced by the way that um, some of the platforms struck the consumer, like um, like Amazon, for example, um, that the, the consumer is not seen as male or female, but just sort of gender neutral. Uh, and so perhaps we're moving in in, in um, the e-commerce era, we're moving into a time period where shopping is not necessarily constituted as feminine, although that historical phenomenon, um, um, you know, definitely was um, taking place over that over the period of our volume but towards the end of it um, it perhaps was changing again to something completely different very interesting so let's continue with the history of the experience of shopping which has that um, also changed throughout the 20th century in developed economies um, <clears throat> the idea of that was my uh, one one thing I, I really enjoyed reading the idea of fixed pricing in department stores. Um, when 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 do shoppers begin paying what the tag says, right, <laughs> as opposed to perhaps some bargaining, um, or when do uh, do we start seeing options of the same product? Um, is that a consumer or a producer uh, driven process? Uh, this shifts as well as. Um, are explained in uh, in Sarah's chapter. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how this um, research topic? How do you research these topics? But also, what you know, what the history of them? Sure. Um, well, the idea of fixed pricing is associated with John Wanamaker, Philadelphia, uh, in the mid late nineteenth century. Um, it's hard to say if he invented it. He's credited with inventing the price tag, and certainly by the time you get to the twentieth century, the idea that everybody pays the same price—it doesn't matter if you have a relationship with the merchant, if you uh, are able have you know really great haggling skills—that there's a price tag, and that's the price you pay. Um, that becomes very entrenched by the period that we're talking about in this volume. Um, I would say that there's often a process by which individual merchants might introduce a new innovation or a new service. And then customers in turn are aware of this and will demand this at other places. So um, it's quite quickly that these things are adopted across the, uh, across the sector. Um, if you have people get used to having a charge account in one store, other stores are going to pick up that practice uh, really quickly. Um, a few might still uh, like the old practice of haggling, there's always going to be holdovers and there's always going to be people that are still involved in older modes of retailing and uh, shopping. But I would say that once consumers become aware of a new convenience or service, then it becomes really hard for a retailer not to offer those things. But the thing that we have to remember is that there's no one natural way to shop. And I really like this volume because I think it shows you how historically contingent this is, how this is so culturally uh, informed and so specific to uh, different areas. Um, 
there are social and cultural conventions and attitudes that inform how we purchase goods. And these can be really unpredictable. Um, my favorite example of this is the lowly shopping cart. We don't think anything of going to a grocery store and taking that shopping cart. It seems natural to us. It seems like an unquestioned thing that has always been there. But grocers had to teach people to use those carts. Um, Sylvan Goldman hired people to push the carts up and down the aisles in his grocery store in Oklahoma because at first people didn't like them. Uh, male patrons felt that this suggested they were effeminate, that they couldn't lift the basket themselves. Um, some women didn't like having the sense of pushing a baby buggy. You had women saying, oh, I've, I'm done doing that. I'm not doing that anymore. And so he hired like models to walk up and down the aisles. And then people went, hey, that's really convenient. Oh, and then started using them. And so I think going back and unpacking this and thinking about, well, why do people act in a certain way? Is this something, it's not natural. This is all something that is, uh, you know, sort of historically specific. And that's what I think this volume is really kind of valuable um, for showing. It also is not only how people shop, uh, shop, but also how stores look like, right? You have to make bigger aisles to push those carts. And we still today, there are supermarkets or places that are smaller and they have smaller carts, right? And still it's very inconvenient, but they still have it um, so that, yeah. you know, people are used to that and they want, now they want a cart to be able to put more things in it and not have to go a thousand times to the store and things like that. Yeah. And Paula, what you mentioned about the, uh, the actual format of the of the store, the venue, that um, I think that's another thing that the volume does, the different authors point out the relationship between shopping as a social and cultural practice, and then the evolution of the business practices, and the um, types or, or modes of retail that evolve over time, and that there's this interaction between them, that, um, you know, uh, uh, Sarah mentioned the shopping cart, um, uh, you know, and that also the idea of having everything under one roof, as opposed to going to from spe uh, specialized market to market um, on a street or or um, looking at um, just going to the butcher, just going to the baker, just going to the grocer, uh, you know, that, that department stores, supermarkets all, all, uh, took um all of these different types of lines of goods and put them under one roof. And that, that idea itself was uh, sort of a new business practice, but also involved changing the way people thought about and, and, and related to, um, to shopping that, you know, that it was not something that you, you did it with this personal relationship between you and one person at your favorite baker, you would go into the supermarket and, and buy things from people you didn't know um, in this kind of a more impersonal format so um, the volume, uh, while it's highlighting, the authors are, are highlighting shopping as a social and cultural and economic practice. They're also at various times, you know, tracing the evolution of the uh, retail formats um, in different uh, time periods and also different um, national contexts. Yeah, um, there is really a lot of organization behind um, behind that as well. That's really interesting. And these practices also kind of coexist, right? Because there's still there's still the baker, I mean, at least in Europe or here as well, I mean, in the US, and um, there's still the baker and the butcher and the um, fist market. 
on this, you know, as well, you could do your big shopping at very big supermarkets where you can find anything. I'd like to also talk a little bit more about how, um, so what the the spaces or the uh, frameworks or the, but it's not a spaces, it's the elements that kind of live besides the mar- uh, the market, which you point is the, uh, I mean, the authors of this volume point to the home and the family and how these are also um, categories that we can uh, study uh, to understand the history of shopping. This also, I think, ties to why gender is at the center of the understanding of shopping and that is so interesting to see how much um, this, what we have been talking about, the forms, the plans, the payment, uh, the product designed, all is, you know, sellers have to think of families, of the home, of uh, how the differences between different families and and um, and households. Can you comment a bit more, more on the la- latter parts of the book where this is explained? I think that um, the 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 cover image, uh, which is from um, the Getty Archives, and it's a um, photograph, black and white photograph of a of a white family, affluent looking family outside of a supermarket, and the man is um, pushing a, a shopping cart. Um, his wife is carrying a bag of a paper bag of cl- of um, groceries, and they have three children. Some of their some are helping carrying goods. Uh, and they're they're smiling and they're walking to, in the parking lot, probably out to their car. Um, I think that we chose that photo, um, and, and I think it's it's also used in one of the um, chapters. It might be the home and family chapter by Helen Shoemaker, if I recall correctly. Um, we chose that for the cover image um, in part because uh, it it it's a reflection of that idea of of the gendered nature of shopping, as well as um, how it is historically uh, contingent. Um, and that here in that photograph, you see a moment where it's, at least in the idealized um, representation uh, of, of it, that the gender nature of shopping is on the brink of changing or perhaps changing, where you have the family together shopping, not just the woman shopping for her household um, you have the man involved in it, w- willingly pushing the cart, smiling, you know, engaged in the in, in the family enterprise of, of provisioning for the family um, as sort of a leisure activity, something that's enjoyed by them together. Uh, and that that is something very much of a, a sort of a, a product of that Cold War togetherness that I believe it's uh, historian Elizabeth Cohen talks about um, in, um, in her book, um, Consumers Republic, um, this idea that uh, the home could be this enclave or sort of um, uh, something to, to protect uh, the family. Uh, and I actually, I think she's drawing also on uh, Elaine Tyler May's Homeward Bound, uh, that idea of family togetherness that emerges in that Cold War context in the suburbs. Uh, and that shopping could be this place where families could um, exp- experience that togetherness um, and, and, and do something that together that previously would have been done as a form of labor, unpaid labor by the housewife, um, and where the man would not be engaged in that type of um, activity, especially with his children, like like is represented in that photograph. So in the 1950s, you might have this sort of idealized 
um, representation of togetherness in shopping, and where um, that is something that was different than before the before the war, and then maybe would be different later in later decades when people are shopping online. Um, but we chose that because it was sort of a a, a very striking image of that historical moment um, in the middle of that of that century that we're looking at in my volume. Uh, so. Um, I think that each of the chapters, you know, including that um, that one home and family towards the end are trying to focus on the cultural aspect of shopping. Um, We also had a chapter on visual and literary representations, which looked at art and uh, popular cultural representations of shopping. And then my own chapter, um, Luxury in Every Day, um, which focused on actually the wedding industry uh, and um, shopping for luxury and everyday goods at particular moments in, in the life cycle, like when people are getting married. Um, so there was a real sort of strong sort of cultural element, I think, in in the volume that I think that image um, on the on the cover was supposed to signal. I, I might just jump in here, uh, if that's okay, Paula, and say the images in this book are another real, I think, strength of the volume. And so Vicky talked about the photo on the cover, but uh, the photographs of people shopping and everything from uh, stores filled with clerks and customers to people pouring over a, a mail order catalog. I think that's another really attractive thing about this volume um, is the, you know, these really amazing photographs that the contributors were able to uh, to use and include in the volume. And as Vicky said, um, the, the home becomes this uh, a sort of, um, you know, symbol in the post-war period. And I think that shopping takes on this political um, significance, especially, uh, you know, Vicky mentioned the Cold War, but you can think of William Levitt of Levittown um, saying that, you know, no man can be a communist that owns his own home because he has too much to do. Or you think of uh, Nixon and Khrushchev and the kitchen debate that shopping is much more than just, oh, I'm, I have need to go out and get a few things because that keeps our household running. It is symbolic of the American dream, of uh, being part of this uh, larger commitment to capitalism and defining success according to having these items. And so, um, so I think that that uh, is also, uh, you know, the sort of political importance and symbolic importance of, of buying into this system in a certain way, I think is uh, in this time period is really essential. Thinking um, you are shoppers, you probably shop every day. You might, you probably think about how this is going to look like uh, in the next 50 years. Uh, but Tell me a bit more before we leave, uh, a bit more about archives and how do you find these images? How, you know, because you kind of have to, I'm sure you do have to do very diverse search for images, but also for the experience. How do you get to that experience uh, of shopping? How, what do historians or anywhere, anyone else, uh, where do they have to look for these kind of sources? Well, in terms of the volume, uh, we were very fortunate. Bloomsbury had um, access to the Getty Archives, and um, which is a rich photographic, you know, archive of, of the American experience, mostly in the uh, 1940s onward period. Um, and so we were able to draw, like, like the cover images from that, um, uh, from that easily. Uh, but in terms of individual uh, authors and their their research, it it was 
people's um, research drew on a, just a wealth of wealth of sources, the kinds of things that you would expect, like um, uh, women's magazines, advertising archives, um, newspapers, uh, visual sources, but also um, uh, you know trade catalogs. Um, you know, the catalogs themselves of, of the mass retailers, like the Sears, Sears catalog, um, and as well as um, photographs of, of that document the material practices uh, of people. Um, for example, I think the Home and Family chapter by Helen Shoemaker uh, looked at, of um, using the Library of Congress archives, uh, looked at um refrigerators and, and other kinds of household appliances and um, people's use of them as well as the representation of of them in advertisements to talk about representations of gender and family. So lots of things you might expect, but also some creative use of, of sources. Yeah, I wonder how e-commerce is going to be, it's going to have to be studied. Um, <laughs> lots of- yes, that's that's a tricky, tricky question. question. I think um Historians in the future will have to rely on our, our efforts now to create these digital uh, records of emails and that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, web experience, how, you know, it is so different to shop at um, Amazon than to shop at this new app that I didn't even know, Temu, Temi. It's, it's lots of, it, it is like mixed between um, <clears throat> social media and shopping which is, <laughs> yeah, mind-blowing for me when I when I just received a, and I was just trying it. I didn't even buy anything, but I thought it was amazing. There are these apps, uh, not in the American market, but more in, in, in Asia that do that a lot. Like they mix WhatsApp with social media, with, um, so that identity that you create when shopping is right, <laughs> instant, right? Um, very interesting. Do you want to say um, anything about archives, Sarah? Oh, sure. Um, I, I do think that, again, shopping, in the same way that we've talked about it being gendered, um, this is part of the reason that, um, you know, that I, that in the 20th century, the sense that shopping is something associated with women is often dismissed as something frivolous. And so that has, is why there has not been as much attention to the history of consumption as there has been to the history of production. Um, you know, that there still is that kind of bias, the holdover in this view of, of separate spheres and what is real and important versus what is just a kind of ancillary kind of behavior. Um, and so I think that studying the history of shopping is also challenging for that reason, because a lot of the times you're having to look at sources that don't, um, it's not necessarily from the individual shopper's perspective, so that you have to read through the trade magazine and try and understand that a retailer is trying to predict how shoppers can act, but they don't know exactly what's going to happen. They're trying to create a display that they feel is 100% going to turn sales around in this uh, in this department, but they don't know what that reaction is, is going to be. So a lot of times it's sort of reading against the grain sometimes, or thinking about responses when uh, someone is surprised when a you know a product doesn't launch well, and then thinking about why that happens. So that I think that having to be creative in looking at the history of shopping in the same way that social historians have long 
long had to be creative and sort of look and read against the against the grain in sources. You know, that's part of the challenge, and that can also lead to some really uh, interesting and uh, um, unusual finds. Yeah, marketing studies are, are, are similar, where you have the perspective of the marketer, but in between you'll see people's comments about the their experience um, shopping or their experience with the goods that they purchased. Uh, you know, one of those standouts that I, I, uh, that it, I remember was a, a study from the 1920s of small town consumption. And Sarah, I think you probably used this source as well, but it was um, uh, basically all these women commenting on the different stores in their community in um, small towns in the, in, um, I guess it was in the Great Plains area mostly. Um, and uh, they would talk about, what kinds of things they bought, what brands they were they were interested in, um, what kinds of uh, um, advertising publications influenced them, um, and so you know you could get at least you could you could get an, an idea of what people were doing uh, through the their words, um, but you would have to take into account to account the fact that these were publications meant to capture um, that perspective for the purpose of selling. Uh, advertising to um, advertising pages to people who were uh, in the business of buying that. So there was a bias involved in it. But through creative reading, you could you could at least figure out uh, the practice, you know, to some degree at that time and place. Right. Great. Thank you. Um, before we go, could you tell us more about uh, your current projects and where is this um history of shopping taking you these days? <laughs> um, so uh, I uh, continue to be the editor of the journal History of Retailing and Consumption. And um, I just recently uh, published something um, in an area that I'm interested in doing more work on, which is on uh, race and retailing. And um, it was in a book called Communicators, Audiences and Strategies, uh, put out by Peter Lang. And I published something just recently um uh, on Southern department store managers and segregation in the 1950s and 1960s. And uh, this was an area that I'd wanted to do more work on when I did my book on the um, um, department store industry. And I, uh, this new article reflects some of my further work on that area. Uh, but I'm also interested in nostalgia and, and retailing as so many of this uh, businesses that I've researched um, for my book um, from Main Street to Mall that, uh, those, so many of those have gone under or have changed um, and are some of the shopping malls that I remember um, going to, you know, have, been, have closed and the department stores have closed, you know, it's something that uh, is just seems to be on the brink of extinction. And I'm interested in the nostalgia that has emerged surrounding that change in, in our shopping landscape. And I, I would like to um, uh, create some kind of um, oral history um sort of database uh, about people's experiences and their feelings about th these changes. And it's something that actually Sarah Elvins and I have been talking about um, doing it's some kind of um, North American, perhaps uh, study um, through, through crowdsourcing some kind of database to capture uh, people's experiences and their thoughts on this um, particular historical moment in, um, in shopping history. But that's in the very, just in the talking phase at this point. <laughs> right. I love that, the database and oral history. Yeah. Sarah? 
Um, expanding on my interest in cross-border shopping, I'm working on an article right now with Catherine Parkin about the marketing and promotion of abortion services in New York State um, and their promotion to Canadians to come across the border and access clinics in upstate New York. Um, there was a group of entrepreneurs uh, who de- developed referral services and they would offer travel packages and market this to uh, Canadian women who did not have um, the same abortion was more restricted in uh, in Canada. This is in the early 1970s. And so um, we are looking at the advertising and marketing strategies. These were for-profit clinics that capitalized on this and specifically targeted um, Canadian women as, uh, as the market. And I'm also doing a little work in food history. I've been looking at the Pillsbury Bake Off and um, ideas of cooking skill and how they are um, promoted and uh, sort of shaped by um, advertising for Pillsbury. Now to wrap up the, the conversation, thank you very much for being here with me today. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. This is the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. Today we have talked about a very great book, A Cultural History of Shopping in the Modern Age, edited by Vicki Howard and... Um, We've also had in this conversation Dr. Shara Elvins, who is also a contributor of the volume. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host of the channel in the New Books Network, and I thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.